Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to episode 58 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance or compliance related issue, literally going into the weeds to consider it. Today, we take a look at the compliance response and indeed the compliance obligations that have arisen and are part of the conversation now since the Harvey Weinstein scandal. We consider how compliance can be part of the solution to sexual harassment and how this can be incentivized and promoted within the company through the effective use of a hotline and reporting system. It's a fascinating discussion over a topic that is on literally on everyone's uh, minds at this point, and the compliance practitioners out there need to be ready to respond to this with a solution. Matt and I take a deep dive into this, and I think you will find it very instructive. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, which is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox with a very shaky-voiced compliance evangelist today because last night I was at Game 5 of the Astros' win over the Dodgers in the World Series. We are now moving on to L.A. for Game 6 and 7. So, Matt, I have to tell you, I'm beginning to believe, just getting a hint of it. How are things in Boston? You know, we are generally very pro-Astros here since you defeated the Yankees, which automatically makes you our friends in our book. Um, and it has been exciting to watch. I'm, I'm very happy for the Houston Astros fans. So uh, we had uh, we were both at Compliance Week. We were lucky enough to record a couple of different events. But one thing I've really wanted to sit down and literally take a deep dive into the weeds with you on is the Harvey Weinstein scandal and all of the attendant uh, commentary and really conversation around sexual harassment. Uh, we could go in a myriad mm-hmm. of ways, but I wanted to see if we could maybe think about it or at least talk about it in terms of what it means for the compliance practitioner. And I know you've written about it in a post called Fighting Harassment Where It Lives. Uh, I've written about it. And so I thought, uh, like I said, I really just wanted to have some time to take a deep dive with you on this. So uh, maybe uh, you just want to dive into your thoughts. Sure. Um, you know, the, the the sad thing is, for better or worse, I, we don't necessarily even need to talk about Harvey Weinstein because he is just one of the many examples that are now coming over the transom here. Um, I wrote my column last week uh, about, well, what struck me was that over the weekend, and this would have been, I guess, the weekend of October 20th or so, we had three big sexual harassment stories come one, two, three. First was Harvey Weinstein. Um, certainly the Financial Times had a great article looking at the governance failures that allowed Weinstein himself to be this unchecked sort of force because the Weinstein company board, uh, there were one or two board members who wanted to investigate his misconduct, which apparently has gone on for years, but they were thwarted in multiple ways by multiple people for many years, sexual harassment gone awry, you know, like problem number one, uh, problem number two or example number two is the next day, New York times had a, another story about Bill O'Reilly, former Fox news host where O'Reilly in mid 2016, early 2016, he paid off a accuser $32 million, which is an, an enormous sum of money in this sort of dispute 
paid her $32 million in February of 2016 to be silent, and Fox then turned right around a month or two later and renewed his contract. Then came the extra allegations about his earlier misconduct that ultimately led the Fox board to fire O'Reilly around May of 2016. So, like, we have these two examples right there, but... I think for most compliance officers, the most interesting story would be to go to the Wall Street Journal and read up the story about Fidelity Investments' struggles to deal with sexual harassment in its ranks, uh, where they had multiple employees doing this, and you know we can get into why, but like I said, we just have sexual harassment allegations all over the place with lessons to spare for the compliance profession. So, Matt, when the story with Weinstein first broke, the thing that struck me was from the compliance angle that for the first time I really realized that um, sexual harassment is a compliance issue. And we were both at uh, the Compliance Week, excuse me, uh, SCCE 2017 Compliance and Ethics Institute immediately after the scandal broke and lots of conversations around that topic. And when I raised that point, uh, particularly employment lawyers, uh, just said, really, you just now figured that out? Uh, and it really got me thinking that uh, from their perspective, obviously, it had been around um, as a compliance issue for a long time, but that the thing, how I thought it, um, why it made it such a compliance issue was now the reporting angle. Uh, previously, we had the harassee, the woman, it was her obligation to report, and then hopefully that there would be a reporting uh, mechanism available to her, and there would be an investigation and some resolution of the issue. Uh, but what I saw from Weinstein was that a conversation changing towards people who observed harassment or people who are aware of harassment or people who knew about harassment, whether they were the frontline employees, whether they were coworkers, or as you articulated, boards of directors. It's now our obligation to report it. And you took that uh, that thought really a step further in your blog post because you uh, were able to turn up uh, an outfit in Texas, of all places, uh, <laughs> called the Texas Health Resources, which was named by Fortune as one of the best workplaces in the United States for women. And how they took this concept of not only we are all responsible for reporting, but really baked it into their corporate culture. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. How did you find out about this outfit, and uh, what did your research turn up? So th this was really interesting. And for those people who really want to geek out on podcasts, I'll recommend a different one that I heard that they discussed sexual harassment that put me onto this case. So this is 1A, this is an NPR podcast, and they had an hour-long discussion about sexual harassment. And uh, they had the chief people officer of Texas Health Resources on to talk about their approach to encouraging speak-up culture. And basically, they tie speak up culture they, they they basically they have a requirement for managers to report sexual harassment once they know of it uh they encourage all employees to report it anytime they see it not necessarily having experienced it themselves but if me employee a sees employees b and c where b is harassing c i employee a i should report that to hr hr will then investigate b and c and if it comes out that 
BNC's manager knew about this but had not reported it to HR directly, then the manager would be in trouble. Uh, certainly, employee B, the harasser, he or she would be in trouble. And you know, they they heavily promote the idea that you can always call the helpline and go directly to. I think for Texas Health, you go directly to the HR department rather than compliance. But nonetheless, there's the existence of this fail-safe channel, the reporting hotline, that goes straight to the people who will care. And they will go back to the managers who will say and then be told, you know, like, did you know about this? If you knew about it, but you didn't tell us about it, you now, you, manager, you're in trouble. And it neatly puts pressure on managers to speak up when they see it. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't know how that is tied to managers' compensation, which I think is worth discussing. But um, it's a very good, aggressive, but not overly aggressive and heavy-handed, you know, systematic approach to letting people report this anytime they see it. And lo and behold, then, Texas Health is now been named several times as one of the best places for women to work, and Fortune named it the best place out of, I think, 100 uh, in about last September, I think. Uh, so it is currently, according to Fortune, the best place for, for women, the best workplace, and tactics like this, I, I can't say I'm surprised. So one of the things that struck me about uh, how the sexual harassment issue is now bleeding into compliance and how I hope the conversation will continue to go forward. If we take the concept that Texas Health utilizes literally in their incentive program and their evaluation of their managerial ranks is the following. Uh, in my experience, uh, I've worked in law firms, I've worked in uh, commercial uh, corporations, uh, both public and private. And in those two um Work environments. Uh, the law firm was much more a uh, pervasive uh, environment that uh, pervasively allowed sexual harassment, and I won't say it was expected, but it was certainly accepted. In the corporate world, it was certainly not uh, acceptable. But Matt, in both environments, everyone knew who the harassers were. In the law firms, mm -hmm. we knew that, and and frankly, in the corporate world, we knew that. Uh, we just called them something different. We called them players. And I started thinking about that concept in terms of other uh, conduct that's either not acceptable, uh, violates uh, internal company uh, policies and procedures, or may even move to some other violations, such as uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or others. And uh, in the business world, uh, those people tend to be called sharp operators. They either play in the gray space, they go up to the line of acceptability and kick dust on the line, but sometimes they step over and if we can develop the type of culture where it's not just we speak up when we see sexual harassment, but if we speak up when we see other illegal or unacceptable or conduct which violates a code of conduct or internal policies and procedures, that may be a shift. And that's really the shift that I wanted to, to see if we could unpack a little bit. Is that a shift? I even see this as a, a bookend to a conversation that started back in uh, 1991 or 1992 with uh, the Clarence Thomas hearings and Anita Hill, where it was, uh, I thought, the first time we had a national conversation about sexual harassment. And, and I just think something's changed over the past couple of weeks and wondered what your perspective on that might be. Well, uh, in one or two ways, I think so, yeah. But I think that we still have some ways to go in another way, and I'll I'll get to that in a moment. Um, 
I think that people are more emboldened to speak out about what I will call empowered harassment. And I would put Harvey Weinstein and Bill O'Reilly in that case, that category. What do I mean by that is these guys are enormously powerful within their organizations. And they have the, uh, I guess, the the boldness and the uh, fearlessness that they would commit harassment, but they have the power to silence people from speaking up about it. You know, they can pay you off, they can threaten your career, they can do whatever. Um, But, you know, like Bill O'Reilly was one of the most important people at Fox, and Harvey Weinstein was the CEO of his company for 20 years. So are we more emboldened to speak up about that? Yes, and that is a good thing. But there's another type of harassment that I think corporate compliance officers are probably going to encounter more often is more like what we saw at Fidelity Investments, where I would call it more systemic harassment. There is a, you know, okay, sometimes there are men who commit sexual harassment. That is not news. They're not necessarily high-level senior executives, but at Fidelity, there were several mid to senior level male executives who were harassing employees. And the real problem, I thought, what jumped out at me is Fidelity Investments has multiple women in senior leadership roles, including Abigail Cohen, the CEO, who's the most powerful person in investment management, period, regardless of gender. It's Abby Cohen. And here she is with several lieutenants who are women who are certainly not get oblivious to the irritations and the problems of sexual harassment. And still, Fidelity had these issues. Why? Because they had a compensation system that relied somewhat on your manager evaluating your performance, and that opened the door for male managers to harass female subordinates. If you didn't like that, I would affect your performance review. You wouldn't get a bonus. You might get forced out. And I mean, that also actually would create a space for office bullying doesn't necessarily have to even be sexual harassment. It's just harassment period because the compensation system gives the manager some power to bully or harass. And it creates a dynamic where you're afraid to speak up. That really was what's bedeviling fidelity. And how do we get around that? I don't know, but I would put fidelity's challenges over on one side and think about those I'd put Harvey Weinstein and Bill O'Reilly on another side and, you know, how do we handle those? We handle them in different ways because they're different types of problems. And I think we're getting better at both, but we should keep in mind that they are two different types of issues. And I do think most compliance officers, are you really going to have a superstar being harassment or a harasser? Or are you going to encounter some, like I say in my post, you know, some jackass assistant VP who's annoyed because the secretary or the intern won't flirt back with him by email, and then he flags her in a performance review. That's much more common. That's annoying. It's a problem. It has to be dealt with. How do we deal with it? I'm not quite sure, but it's a separate problem than the Bill O'Reilly's of the world. So, Matt, let me turn to another point you raised in your opening remarks, and that's the role of the board of directors. Uh, Obviously, with Weinstein's company, we had multiple um, instances where the board approved the payment of uh, hush money, essentially, settlement money, uh, company money uh, for uh, women who were harassed by Weinstein. In the Bill O'Reilly case, we had actual knowledge by the board of directors of, um, I guess, News Corp, but uh, certainly Fox. 
a board of directors around the payments made on behalf of uh, O'Reilly as well. And now we have this conversation about what's the role of the board. Uh, the Weinstein board certainly knew, uh, but didn't take any action. Now, you could say that uh, you know it was his company, it was his name on it. Nevertheless, uh, if you're a board of director, you have separate obligations, simply more than above just the person whose name is on the company door uh, for a U.S. public company. And do you think that this is going to change either what the board's obligation is or even the shareholder uh, queries and responses to the board on this point? I do. I think it will change some of the shareholder queries. Yes, I do. Um, I'm more curious about whether there are going to be any legal um, implications for this, like, say, for Fox. I know that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan was investigating News Corp or 21st Century Fox, I think it is. But they were investigating them to see whether their failure to disclose Bill O'Reilly's earlier settlements and Fox's settlements on Bill O'Reilly's behalf. This was company money being paid to settle cases of harassment by an employee. Should that have been disclosed to shareholders? Now, I don't know exactly where that case will get resolved, um, but I think that shareholders themselves would probably be very unhappy, and I could see shareholder activists seizing on this. Um, the other point that really kind of jumped out at me about the O'Reilly case in particular was I know that the board was aware of company money paid to settle claims against O'Reilly, but James uh, Murdoch, I believe it was James Murdoch, he was quoted in the New York Times as saying that, well, I can't be expected to know everything that goes on at the company because he didn't know, he claims, that O'Reilly had personally paid $32 million to one of his accusers. Yeah, with all due respect to James Murdoch, yeah, that's actually something I would expect you to know, that your star employee is paying out an obscene amount of money to settle what appear to be very serious allegations. Um, even if it comes out of O'Reilly's personal bank account, like, that's something that the board, I would think, should know. And that's something that you should maybe have disclosure among key employees. Put that in the contract. I mean, a morals clause, you know, that's, that's not anything new under the sun. So I could see that sort of issue being brought closer to the surface now that there are boards that are um, really on the hot seat here. And with the the Weinstein case, you can see there were two board directors in particular who were trying their best to get this uncovered and turn over the rocks and see what was there. And Weinstein and several board members that apparently were aligned with him really worked to thwart what they were trying to expose. And that had gone on for years. That sounds like derivative shareholder litigation to me. Um, what, is it going to stick or not? I'm not sure about shareholder litigation. You can always find a shareholder willing to sue somebody about something. So we'll see. The other thing, Matt, that struck me about the Weinstein case in particular was at the board level was the damage, uh, catastrophic damage to the reputation of the company to the point where it may have to take bankruptcy because it uh, cannot find a white knight investor. And does this mean CEO, senior management conduct of this sort uh, is now a reputational risk that the board must, if not manage, exercise oversight on? Uh, It certainly seems like it to me. I think if I were a shareholder at uh, Weinstein, I would be very unhappy with the state of affairs. I mean, that I don't see how that company survives in anything recognizably like its previous form. 
um, and if the Weinstein company had been publicly traded, I mean, just how many shareholder groups would be clamoring for the board's head? And they'd probably get it. Um, now, I think that, you know, if you, could we say, could we apply that to what happened with Bill O'Reilly at Fox News? You know, the fact is that O'Reilly was not the CEO. Um, he was one of several key employees. I think his conduct's probably in the same sort of egregious level. It's not as debilitating as what Weinstein will do to the Weinstein company. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it really does rise to a question of boardroom governance and how you govern the personal conduct of key employees, because that could lead to some really catastrophic results for the company and for shareholders. I happened to be uh, at a client's last week um, to put on annual training, and I sat down with a CEO, a woman CEO, and talked to her about why I wanted to talk about the Weinstein case, although when we started, she didn't really see the uh, analogy to, to her company. And I tried to explain to her why I thought it was so important that people feel comfortable about raising their hand and speaking up with no fear of retaliation, that they un believe that they'll be treated fairly. They believe the investigation will be uh, performed quickly, efficiently, and discipline, if any, would be administered consistently. And when I talked her through that, uh, she said, you know, I think I need to talk about this. I don't think that's something you should talk about. And let me say that. And then you follow up with your example from Harvey Weinstein. So I'm hoping that this entire imbroglio around sexual harassment will open up this conversation and will be beyond simply the, the talking heads like you and I going into the weeds and CEOs, uh, heads of HR, heads of compliance will start to think through down to the actual tactical level that Texas help, Health used going forward. Any thoughts on that? I mean, it, it would be welcome. I think that it is, that, that is right. I mean, you know, you and I can talk about anything, but really it is up to the companies to try and think this through. Um, it does keep bringing me back to thinking about the fidelity investments problems where clearly they're aware of this. I, I would say, you know, they're more thinking about how do we confront this challenge because it is not unreasonable to say that compensation schemes, especially around incentive pay or performance evaluations, that managers should have some input in to how employees are evaluated. But as soon as you do that, you create a space for managers to take advantage of it. And in a large organization like Fidelity, which is very large, there are always going to be a few bad apples. And um, how do you crack down on them? How do you maintain a good compensation and performance evaluation system? And how do you cultivate a speak-up culture? And it's it's not easy. And I, I don't have the answer today, that's for sure. But um, – I do think that that's going to be a challenge for quite a while. So, Matt, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has been a fascinating discussion. And as I've said, I really wanted to take a deep dive with you into this because I think we're going to be talking about this uh, for some time to come. And I think the potential reputational risks that companies are facing is uh, when companies aren't going out of business, businesses take notice of that. So I'm hoping mm -hmm. we can continue the conversation and look forward to uh, your next writings on this. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. 
If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help us to get the word out about the only compliance-related podcast that takes a deep dive into a compliance-related topic each week. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, and I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode where Matt Kelly and I literally go into the weeds and take a deep dive into a compliance topic in a way that no other podcast does. The Compliance Into the Weeds podcast is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.